For the past few weeks, we have been talking about beholding, beholding Christmas. We've been trying to slow down, trying to zoom in, because Christmas goes too fast. My wife got up this morning and she said, don't you feel like Christmas is almost over? It's like, no, it actually hasn't even got here yet. But we want to not miss Christmas. We want to slow down. We want to see it. We want to behold it in all its mystery and all its wonder. And so we've looked at how the entire Old Testament points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. We've seen how Jesus is the, the rightful king and the king of kings. We've seen how he is beheld in the incarnation and how God becomes flesh. God becomes a man. And this week I... I want to actually sort of look away from Jesus a little bit, if you will, and instead look at how everyone responds to Jesus. I want to behold the responses. I want to behold the responses of those around Jesus and how they respond to him. Because in seeing how they respond, we actually see some things about Jesus himself. We see how we should and how we shouldn't ourselves respond. You've probably seen in shows or movies the inkblot test. It looks something like this. You, you look at an inkblot like this and they say, uh, you know, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And you look at that and you go, oh, butterfly. Or you go, oh, yeah, my parents fighting. Or, oh, yeah, uh, it looks like a wicked scary angel or it looks like a jack-o'-lantern or, you know, you, it looks like fresh cut spring flowers spewing over a babbling brook with a hint of lemon. You know, you look at it and everybody kind of sees something else. And the point is that everyone sees something different. And a lot of times that's how people think about Jesus. They say of Jesus, you know, you can kind of think of him whatever you want. You know, it's whatever, whatever you think of him. It depends on you. The Jesus is in the eye of the beholder. You know, they say, you know, he can be whatever you want him to be, whoever he is to you. They say, you know, for some people, Jesus uh, is a wise sage. For some people, he's a teacher worth following. He, he gives good advice. For others, he's a comfort knowing that he's watching over us in the sky. For some, he's everything that's wrong in the world. He is the opiate of the masses for some. For some, he's outdated. He's backward. He's out of touch. For some, he's regressive or even abusive. And for others, he's the rightful king of their lives and of the world, deserving their full allegiance. And yet still, for others, they think he might be real, but he has no real bearing on their lives. For some, they think he's a, he's a great life coach. The point is that some say Jesus can be whatever you want him to be. He is whatever you want him to be. He's your Jesus. But this is faulty thinking. It is faulty because of who Jesus was and who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. When you see and understand when you actually grasp and understand the claims of Jesus, not only must you respond, but he can't be what you want him to be. He can't be whatever you decide or think you want him to be for you. He can only be what he is. You see, the response to Jesus is much less like an ink blot 
and it is more, much more like a painting that was sometime back placed in a museum. A painting that was called, entitled, the painting was called, Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue? It's this painting right here. You look at this painting and you ask, I'm in the wrong business. If this can be put up in a museum and someone making a bunch of money off of this, I'm in the wrong business. What is so special about this painting that's basically just red and it's got a little blue on the side? What is so special that people come to a museum and just fawn over this painting? What a masterpiece, they say. How incredible. No, leave the painting up there. we got to behold it. Yeah, put it back up there. Man, look. Look at this painting. Look at this red. Oh, isn't it so moving? People would come to this museum and they would gawk and fawn over this painting. Critics would go talk about how amazing it is, the hues, the red, just, oh, it speaks to you. Oh, man. Until one day a man came into the museum with a knife and he slashed the painting as fast as he could, back and forth, all the way across it until, you know, somebody came and tackled him. He destroyed it. He slashed it to bits. He was immediately arrested and thrown in jail. And there was an outcry, how could he do this? But then something else happened. While he was in jail, the, the outcry of his crime ceased to calm down. And then people began to praise him. The experts came out on the news and they said, well, he only did what everyone else wanted him to do. He only did what every sensible person would do. They praised him. The experts on the news got on there and said, man, thank you for destroying this just red thing. Didn't need to be in a museum. He did what was sensible. Of course you should destroy that. It's just red. It's not special. And yet still other ones called out him for murdering the painting. How a painting, if you could even call it that, could have such a strong, visceral reaction in two different extremes, I don't understand. But the reaction to this painting is much closer to how we should react to Jesus. Jesus is not an inkblot where, you know, whatever he looks like and feels like to you, you know, whatever he means to you, you can have that. That's not Jesus. He's not an inkblot where he can be whatever you want him to be. He's much more like this painting that causes extreme reactions in two different directions. Either you are in favor of him and you praise him and you bow down and you worship him or you completely reject him and you see him as an enemy and as the problem. There is no middle ground for when it comes to responding to Jesus. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at those people who were around Jesus from the very beginning at his birth. And we want to behold their responses. How do they respond to Jesus when he's born? And what their responses are tells us a lot about how we should respond. And it tells us a lot about the nature of Jesus himself. So first, we want to behold Mary's response. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we want to see. And I want you to notice two things about Mary and how she responds to the news of Jesus the Messiah coming into the world. So first, let's read from the book of Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, guide them Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 28. Luke chapter 1, verse 28. Luke pens these words inspired by the Holy Spirit and writes the very words of God. And he says, 
And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. This young girl is simply living her life, minding her own business, when this angel shows up to tell her that everything is about to change for her because she's going to give birth to God. She's going to give birth to the Messiah. And that she, while she will remain a virgin, she asks, can I get, a, can I get an explanation on that? Can I get a sidebar? Can you explain this to me? Uh, and he, he, he does that. He's like, listen, God's going to make it happen. And so now she knows this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. She's going to be an outcast. She's going to be, she could potentially be stoned. Her husband's probably going to leave her. No one is going to believe that she's pregnant, yet a virgin, and all of this jazz about God making this happen. But yet, in the midst of what has got to be a crisis for Mary, how does she respond? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the midst of what could only be described as an impossibly hard task, something that's thrust upon her that she didn't ask for, she doesn't choose. She doesn't choose this, but yet she responds, not with agitation, not with complaining, not with frustration. Instead, she says, "God, I am yours to command. I am yours to command. Use me however you want. Let it be done to me according to your word." God, I am yours. Mary has the first response ever to the news of Jesus. And she responds as a humble servant. Mary responds as a humble servant to this newborn king. She knows who she is and she knows who he is. And in a sense, that means she knows her place. She knows that he is the king. She knows it is her duty to obey God and follow him. More than that, she knows it is her joy to serve. As we think about beholding Jesus, may it be our response that when we see him, we see a king who might call us to do hard things. We see a king who might call us to do seemingly impossible things at times, hard things at times, uncomfortable things at times. But we trust him and so we like Mary say to the Lord God whatever you would ask of me whatever you would call me to do we say I am your servant let it be done to me according to your word we say I'm your servant command me O king I'm a tool in your hand to be used we trust him why would we respond like this to Jesus why would we give our entire lives in service to someone else 
to give up our values, our wants, our desires, and follow him. The only reason to respond like that, the only way you would respond like that, is if you, like Mary, know who this Jesus is. Only when you know that he is God come to us, God in the flesh, God come to save, God come to lead us, God come to serve us, God come to be with us. Only when you know that will you say, yes, I will serve you. But that's not the only way Mary responds. After Mary uh, travels to Bethlehem and after she gives birth to Jesus, some, uh, some shepherds show up out of the blue. They're like, I didn't send you an invite, they just show up. They show up and they meet Jesus, and the, and the only way those shepherds could possibly know was because God revealed it to them and showed them. And here already God is spreading the news about this baby that's going to change the world. And what is Mary's response there in the manger as, he's, as she sees God showing this news to shepherds to come and see him? What, what, what does Mary do as she's greeted by shepherds who come and, and worship him and praise God? As she's witnessed all this, what does she do? The text says that Mary treasured these things in her heart. She says that, it says, it says that multiple times over the course of this story. Mary treasures these things in her heart. You see, Mary responds by treasuring God's redemptive plan. She treasures it. Mary treasures what she's witnessing. What she has right a front seat to. She is watching God's promises be fulfilled. She's beholding centuries of waiting finally come to pass. She is watching and getting to participate in God's redemption of the world. And in the quiet of her own heart, as she beholds the very first Christmas, she takes in what is happening. She truly sees it, and she treasures it. Sometimes our lives are just moving so fast in every direction. We don't have time to do anything because we got to go from this thing to that thing to this thing to that thing. And we don't stop and we don't slow down. Our lives are so fast. The weeks go by and we don't even realize. We're like, what did, what did I do for the past three weeks? I have no idea. I don't even remember it. It just happened. But Mary slows down. And she's taken in this scene. She's, she's watching the shepherds come and, and worship and praise God for this baby she just gave birth to. She's beholding it and she's treasuring what God is doing before her eyes. I think it's a helpful reminder to us that as we behold the Christmas story, as we gather together week in and week out to be in this room, guys, we've got to slow down. We've got to slow down and treasure Jesus. We've got to treasure him as Mary did. We've got to slow down and behold him. You know, there are some things in this life that will take our breath away. There are things in this life that make us pause and reflect and treasure life. Sometimes it is the beauty of creation. You go to the Grand Canyon and you're just like, whoa. Or you see a sunrise over the beach that is purple and pink and yellow and orange and red. And you're just like, whoa. When it's all reflects off the water, you're just like, wow. Where you see the innocent, sweet look of, the, of a face of a child with a goofy grin. Or maybe you're, you catch your spouse's eyes in just a certain way at a certain moment. And it fills your heart with wonder and it makes you treasure. Those things are good, but those things are mere appetizers. Those things are mere granules of what it would look like and mean for us to treasure our Jesus. When we treasure something... 
It means we hold it with incredible value. So this Christmas and every day, particularly on Sundays as we gather, let us place ultimate value in our Jesus. Focusing on him, treasuring him, and let it cause us to take inventory of our lives, to reflect on our lives, and to treasure him and behold him and wonder and marvel at this treasure that's been given to us. Let's treasure like Mary. Now let's turn our attention to Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. Joseph is this dude who is engaged to be married. He is excited about his future. He is excited to build a life with his soon-to-be wife when, when he discovers that Mary's pregnant. Matthew 1.18 says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. We don't know what Mary says. We don't know how Mary responds to him. We don't know how she breaks the news to him or how he finds out. But we can imagine what that, would, what that would be like, right? We can imagine that she's trying to explain it to Joseph, how the baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. I promise I didn't cheat on you. Like, I promise this is from God. But honestly, would any of us in this room buy that line? Would any of us, when, when she plays the God card, be like, really? You really want to play the God card now? Like, seriously? We're not going to believe it. We're not going to buy it. And so what is Joseph's initial response? His initial response is skepticism. Joseph's initial response is skepticism. He isn't buying what's going on. He's he's not believing this this wild uh, tale that she's spinning about this baby being conceived of the Holy Spirit. But being a good man, he's, he's planning to leave her quietly. He's going to divorce her quietly. He's not going to make this big fuss about it. He doesn't want Mary to get in trouble. He doesn't want her to be stoned. She doesn't want everyone to realize this and, and shame her. But I want you to realize something about Joseph's skepticism. God isn't mad about it. God is not angry at Joseph because Joseph can't get his mind around the reality that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. God is not scared or threatened by Joseph's skepticism. God isn't taken back. God isn't requiring blind faith from Joseph or any of his other followers. He is not expecting Joseph to believe this thing that goes against all the laws of nature with no evidence. God is not expecting the, the miraculous of Joseph to believe this with eyes closed and blind faith when it makes no sense. You see, sometimes people think that God requires this sort of faith from us. That he requires blind faith. That you must close your eyes and believe in Jesus and all his claims with all of the evidence against it and without reason. That you've got to just believe. You've got to muster up this belief. Even sometimes people think that you've got to believe contrary to the evidence. Not that there's just no evidence, but that all the evidence is against Jesus. They, they think that to believe in Jesus is to believe that, that my shirt is red despite all the evidence pointing to the fact that it's black. People think that Christianity is like that, that i got to close my eyes and believe with all my heart that my shirt is red. I believe it's red, I believe it's red. And that that's what believing in Jesus is like. But it's not. And God is not asking Joseph to believe Mary's story despite the evidence. And so he literally sends an angel 
to confirm and tell Joseph that Mary is indeed pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. He says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph sees and hears the angel, and what does he immediately do? He moves from skepticism to faith, and he trusts what the angel says. God does not require blind faith, nor is God threatened or mad about our skepticism. God is not mad when we question, when we have to wrestle, right? God is not mad when, we're, when we just like, when we can't quite get there yet, and we've got to kind of think through it a little bit and question things and wrestle with things. He's not mad when we're trying to seek the truth and, and ask hard questions. He's not mad because he knows that the evidence, he knows that sound reasoning, that sound logic, all point to him. He knows that if you truly seek him, then you will find him. If you truly seek the truth, then in the end you will find him. Joseph's skepticism turns to trust when he's confronted with the evidence. And our response can be exactly the same. Guys, I want you to hear me. Like, it's okay to doubt. Like, that's okay. It's okay to wrestle with the truth. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to, like, it not all makes sense, and you're, like, not really quite sure yet how that all works out. Like, all the claims of Jesus. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to, res- to, to wrestle with, like, we believe what we believe is a little weird. It's a little strange. Like, we believe a 2,000-year-old dude was born of a virgin, grew up, never sinned, died on Roman's cross, was resurrected from the dead three days later, and is going to come back in the clouds on a white horse. Like, that's a little strange. And it's okay. That's okay. That's a little weird. Right? It's true. It's, tr- it's weird, but true. And it's okay if, like, it, take, it takes someone, like, a minute to get there. Right? Like, we want to provide the space and say, listen, God's not angry when you've got to, like, wrestle with this a little bit. Because God knows that once you take inventory of all the evidence and the reason, that it will lead you there. And he's okay with you looking at the reason. He's not asking you to have blind faith, just close your eyes and believe it. He's saying, no, 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 Look at all the evidence. Look at all the reasoning. It will lead you to the truth. And we can believe these things. God is not, he's not, he doesn't feel threatened by our questions or our doubt or our skepticism. And he gives us the room to find the evidence and then to, from our, so our skepticism can be turned to belief and to trust him. And so let's be like Joseph, where it's okay to be skeptical, but let's look for the evidence and when we find it to believe and to trust him. So Mary humbly serves and treasures. Joseph moves from skepticism to trust. Now turn your eyes to the shepherds. One thing that uh, we must understand about the shepherds is that they are the lowest class in this society. They are one of the lowest class in this society. They, they have this dirty job. It was a job mostly meant for kids to go out and watch the sheep. And so men who did this only did it because they literally could do nothing else. Because they lacked education, they lacked skills, they lacked connections or standing, and they couldn't do anything else, so they had to be shepherds. They stunk all the time because they were always with sheep. They were literally outsiders. But it is outsiders and the lowly that God comes to to first share the message and the story of the very first Christmas. The greatest news in the history of the world, God chooses to share it with this lowly, uneducated, outclassed, stinky shepherds. He sends his angel to the shepherds, and here's what happens. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, remember that, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Of all the people in the world who announced the coming of the King of Kings to, God chooses lowly, stinking shepherds. They know they're nobodies. Right? They know their status. And so to them, to get this news is a great honor. And they're shocked that God would tell them. But notice their first response. The angel finishes telling them the news. And the text says that they go with haste. Right? They hurry. They go with haste to find this newborn king. They don't waste time. They, they leave their sheep. Right? They're now they're, they're risking their livelihood. They're risking financial ruin. They're risking their sheep running off because they leave their sheep and they go with haste, ri- risking punishment for abandoning their post. They forsake all of that and run in haste to meet with this Jesus. This is an excitement in them that everyone who comes, ever, they go meet Jesus, and they're so excited that now they tell everyone around them. They're so fired up that the world is so turned upside down that everyone else around them, everything else, fades into the background, and their only care in the world is to see the Savior and then tell everyone they meet about the Savior. They go with haste to meet Jesus, and then they go tell everybody. And they're outsiders, and they've, they've stopped caring because they want to go tell everyone. You, you remember that joy? You remember that joy that you had when you first met Jesus? When you first came to know Jesus and you've never experienced anything like it since? That moment that the chains fell off your heart? The moment that your heart becomes his and it, and it soars and you feel light and free and new and whole and changed all at the same time? This moment of, 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 of salvation, this moment of conversion, it's just like everything has changed. And you see the world completely different. That is what the shepherds are experiencing when they meet this Jesus. They praise God and they immediately run and start telling everyone who will listen. They forget about their lowly position. They forget that they stink. They forget what anyone thinks about them. And they go share this good news no matter how it sounded. You see, the shepherds respond with an infectious joy. They have an infectious joy, right? They're going in haste, and they have this joy, and it's contagious, and they want to tell everyone about it. The joy of meeting Jesus is infectious, meaning it's contagious. When you know the love of Jesus, it's not something that we can keep to ourselves. It's not something we can keep inside. Sometimes unbelievers get mad at us, right, when we, when we want to share or talk about Jesus too much. What do they say? Man, stop shoving Jesus down my throat, Right? Stop shoving religion down my throat. You keep that to yourself. But what they don't understand is that the joy that Jesus gives us is infectious. We cannot keep it in. We cannot contain it. It is a joy that must be shared. It is news that is too good to keep to ourselves. 
when you truly understand who Jesus is and when you've experienced his life-altering salvation and, then cha- and you've been changed at the deepest parts of your soul, when you've experienced that, nothing can stop you from sharing. You know, sometimes we watch as new Christians come, get saved, and, uh, and are experiencing that moment of just everything's different for them, everything's changed for them. And what do they do? They passionately and awkwardly go tell everyone about Jesus, right? And what do we do? It makes us uncomfortable. Because we're checking out at Walmart with them, and they're trying to share with the cashier about Jesus, and we're like, man, stop. Right? And what we, we, we try to put them in a box. We try to put them in a box and say, no. You, you got to do this more dignified. You only got you got to you got to find the right time and the right place and the right atmosphere and the right mood and the right setting and let every, all the conditions be right. Then you share Jesus with them, and they're like, "What? No, I've just been changed and it's crazy and it's awesome and it's wow and I just want to tell everyone about it." And you're like, "Yeah, calm down, man. Calm down. It's good. Calm down." And we put them in this box because someone put us in a box, but we're the wrong ones. We should respond like the shepherds and go in haste and let that joy be infectious. And we got to tell everybody about it. Can you believe this thing that's happened? It's changed the world. And we gotta, we got we can't stop sharing about it. We, we need to pray like David did in the Psalms maybe for some of us. That we need to pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because somebody's put me in a box that says I, I, I can't be awkwardly joyful. We instead need to be like kids on Christmas who just got the toy of their dreams and they tell everyone about it. And as the parent, you've heard them tell the same story 75 times when this grandparent comes in and that grandparent comes in, this friend comes over, that uncle comes over, this cousin comes over. And they go, oh my gosh, on Christmas, Santa came and I got this toy and this happened. And they're just so excited and they got to retell it all, right? We should be like that. This Jesus has changed me from the inside out. The chains fell off, my heart is free. And now I've got to tell everyone about it. That's how we should be. But too often we put ourselves in a box. And so let us be like the, be like the shepherds. Restore the joy of our salvation, oh Lord. And let us have an infectious joy that when people see us and hear from us, they're like, man, I don't know if what this guy believes is true or not, but they surely do. Because it's changed them. Let us be like that. Next, let's look at the wise men. The text says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men were from the east, most likely from Persia. They traveled a long way to get here and How is it that they know about this Jewish king? How is it that they know that this star is pointing to this Jewish king? Well, it is probably because one of the previous wise men in Persia left his scrolls behind, and they've read them, the scrolls of the Old Testament, and they've read them and they've learned about this king that was to be born. You see, that wise man was Daniel, who we've been studying about a few weeks ago. Daniel, a wise man in Persia, in exile, has left a legacy left a legacy that has trickled down over the years, and now these new wise men have gotten it, and they want to travel to see this newborn king. But what do these foreigners do the moment they meet Jesus? They've traveled all this way. They've stopped in Jerusalem. They've made it to Jesus. What do they do the moment they see this baby? 
They don't lobby for influence, which would seem reasonable. They don't try to get in good with their parents. They don't make requests or demands. They don't barter. They do the only rightful response to the king of kings. They hit their knees, they bow their head, and they worship. They travel all this way to bow before a baby and worship. The wise men respond in worship. This is so important. A right understanding of Jesus. Rightly understanding the claims made about Jesus demands that we worship him. You see, it is impossible to logically believe that Jesus is merely a good moral teacher, that he's a good life coach, or someone that we should listen to on some things but not others. Those ideas make no sense. They make no sense because Jesus is God. And if God shows up on earth telling everyone how to live, to tell everyone what is wrong with them and how to be saved, and you treat that person like they're a life coach, or like they're a wise sage, or like they're Yoda, you've missed the boat. You've missed the point. You don't look at God and think that he might be right about some things. You look at God and you put your face at his feet and you worship. Jesus deserves our worship. Notice also that they bring gifts befitting a king. Their worship is not just verbal and it's not just in their body language. Their worship is their life. They traveled all of this way. They spend lots of money on the travel. They risk their life on the travel and now they give up more of their wealth in giving these gifts in worship to the king. It means that our worship is not just a one-off thing. Our worship of Jesus is not just a Sunday morning, let's come and sing some songs together thing. Worship is a whole life turned to God. Worship is a whole life lived and turned for God. Romans 12.1 reminds us of that, right? That it is our whole bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It is our life that it comes to worship this king. You see, Sunday mornings are designed to instruct the people of God, to encourage the people of God, to challenge the people of God, to even step on the toes of the people of God sometimes and call them to repentance or change. Sunday mornings are meant to take your empty cup and fill it up. It is meant to take your empty cup and fill it with the truths of the gospel so that you can take it into your Monday and your Tuesday. And that you can go and you can do battle with the enemy. So that you can go and live for Jesus where you work, live, and play. So that you can thrive in your marriage and make it a gospel-centered marriage. So that your parenting can thrive while while you play. Your whole life can be poured out to God. And then what happens when you come back on Sunday morning? Your cup is empty again because you've been worshiping and living for Jesus all week long. That you're exhausted, you're beat up, and you're tired. And now you come in here so that we can dive into the scriptures together. So that we can sing together. So that you can see the person next to you who's struggling with cancer, who's struggling with sickness, who's struggling, who just lost their mom. And you see them singing, it is well with my soul. And if they can sing it while they're going through that, I can sing it when I'm going through this. And we're all going to sing it together and my cup's going to get filled back up. that make sense? And so we come on Sunday morning to get filled back up so we can worship on Monday and on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Because worship is a whole life turned and given to God. When you understand who Jesus really is, the only response that is correct is a life of worship to him. Respect is not enough. Honor is not enough. Praise is not enough. Recognition is not enough. Worship 
is the only response that makes sense. It is the only response worthy of who he is. We must respond like the wise men and worship Jesus as our king. We got to treasure like Mary. We got to trust like Joseph. We've got to share like the shepherds. We got to worship like the wise men. But finally, let's look at Herod. Herod is a fascinating person to behold his response because while Herod does respond negatively toward Jesus, Herod gets it. Herod understands who Jesus is. Herod understands. All that Jesus is claiming and and his coming means. And though Herod's response might be wrong, it is a proper response. And here's what I mean. If you respond to Jesus with vague interest or respect because you think Jesus is a wise, good teacher or even a prophet or you think Jesus is a good life coach, those are improper responses. They're illogical responses because it is a response that does not deal with who Jesus actually literally was. To do that, to respond that way to Jesus is like responding to the question, is Star Wars the best science fiction movie ever? And answering that question by saying, well, actually, I think Star Wars is the best comedy ever. It's a nonsensical answer. It makes no sense. It doesn't deal with the facts on the ground. Herod might respond to Jesus in the negative. He might reject Jesus, but his response comes from the reality that Herod knows exactly who Jesus is, what he, resep- what he represents, and what it means for him. Herod was king of Judah. Herod was placed in charge as king of Judah by the Romans. He's the Roman puppet over it, all of Israel. But Herod enjoyed his power. Herod enjoyed his privilege. Herod enjoyed his authority. He had whatever he wanted. People waited on him hand and foot. He had his own little kingdom here. He might be a puppet, but who cares? He's got power. He's got authority. He's got people waiting on him. Life is good in his own little kingdom. And so when the wise men show up at his palace talking about a newborn king, talking about the king of kings in Bethlehem, Herod gets threatened. Herod begins to grow concerned. And so what does Herod do? He gets sneaky. He pretends to be excited about this. And he goes to the wise men and he begins to say, hey, tell me more about that star. Tell me where it's pointing you, where it's leading. Tell me where is this king supposed to be born because I want to go worship him too. After you guys go find him, y'all come back and tell me. So I can go worship the king too. And he's conniving. The wise men are told this in a dream of Herod's intentions and so they don't return to Herod. And Herod gets mad. And what does Herod do? But he calls for the execution of every boy two years old and younger in Bethlehem. And the mothers cry throughout the night as their babies are slaughtered because Herod wants to remove the threat of this king that rivals his kingdom. Herod sees Jesus as a threat. Herod sees Jesus as a threat. Why does Herod see Jesus as a threat? Because Jesus is coming for Herod's kingdom. Jesus is coming to take over Herod's kingdom. You see, Jesus is a threat to his kingship. Jesus is a threat to Herod's authority. He's a threat to his way of life. He's a threat to everything Herod has or holds dear. And Herod understands exactly who this Jesus is, exactly what he's coming for. And Herod doesn't want to give any of it up. And so he tries to kill him. Understand this. 
Jesus wasn't just coming for Herod's kingdom. He's coming for every kingdom. He's coming for every small kingdom, every large kingdom, every rule, every authority. He is coming to claim every square inch in the total domain of human existence. He's coming to plant his flag and say, it's mine. He's not just coming for Herod's. He's coming for yours. And he's coming for mine. Herod understood Jesus was coming for all that he owned, all his authority, all of his life. And my question for you this morning is, do you realize that Jesus is coming for all that you own, all that you have authority over, and all of your life? You see, Jesus isn't a good teacher who we should learn some good habits from. Jesus is the king who's coming to rule and reign over the whole world, and that includes your little kingdom over your own little life. When you see, when you understand that Jesus is coming for everything, for you and all that you own, there are only two responses. You either, like the wise men, hit your knees in worship and say, command me, O king, like Mary. You give your life to him. Or you, like Herod, say, no, this is my kingdom, this is my life, these are my rules, you can't have it, and you fight back. And, and if you do that, you can have your little kingdom for a little while. You can enjoy some authority. You can enjoy things the way you like them for a little while until he comes back and he will take it for good. You see, Jesus isn't an inkblot test. Jesus is not whatever you want him to be. He's much more like the red painting. He causes extreme responses. You're either all in or you're all out. You're either all for or you're all against. There is no such thing as middle ground. There is no such thing as liking Jesus. You either worship or you fight. You either worship or you do battle. We make a lot of decisions in our life. And many of those decisions are big, life-altering decisions. Should I marry this person? Should we buy that house? Should we have kids? Should I take that job? Should I move to that city? Those things are big and they can change things about your life. People in history have made big decisions, decisions that have changed the world. And people are known for those things, right? For, they're known for the things that they've invented that have changed the world, for the wars that have been fought and won, for the offices people were elected to, for businesses that people started, for speeches that changed the course of history. Those decisions have changed things. But in the end, in the end, at the end of the day, at the end of history, there will be one decision that will stand above all the rest, that everyone will be known for which decision they made, which will prove a decision that was important, not just for the moment, but a decision that was important for all of eternity. And it was life-altering for literally ever. It is the most consequential decision ever made, a decision bigger, more consequential decision than anything in the world, and that is, how did you respond to Jesus? How did you respond to Jesus? Do you understand who he is? Do you understand what he did? Do you understand what he's coming to do? And if so, do you bow and serve and worship? Are you changed forever with an infectious joy? Or do you rebel and fight for every square inch of your little kingdom to keep it? That decision changes everything. Because the baby in the manger grows up to change everything. put it off. No, uh, a lack of decision is a decision. So decide. How will you respond to Jesus? For the very first time or for the one millionth time? 
Let's respond to him. For the first time in your life, where again and again and again with keep responding, keep treasuring, keep serving, keep worshiping, keep sharing, responding to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to behold Christmas. We want to behold this story and all the truths inside of it. We want to behold how everyone responded to you a little differently. And we want, some good, some bad. We want to behold those things, see those things. But God, we want it to, to, to not just be a mental exercise, God, this morning. We want it to be something that, that rattles us, shakes us, makes us think, and calls us to decision. God, this morning, help us to respond to you. Every one of us in this room need to respond to you again and again. For some of you in this room, you've never responded to Jesus in the positive. You've never responded in faith. You've never said, okay, he's king and I'm going to bow and I'm going to worship and I'm going to make him my savior. To forgive me of my sin and to make me whole. Maybe this morning, guys, you need to do that. Like, come do that. We will celebrate and rejoice with you. Come and do that. There's some of you in this room. Who, who may, maybe you've, you've been following Jesus, but, but, you know, you've not taken that step to make that public. Like, you, you've, you've followed him, you've, you, you, you're, you're his, uh, but, but you've, you've not followed him in baptism or, 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 or something. Like, come do that. Let's do that together. There's some of you in this room who, you're following Jesus, you belong to him, but, but you're not serving him. Your life is just so busy. You're just going to work and home and for this sporting event to that sporting event to this play to that thing to this thing. And you're moving so fast that you've got no time, no margin in your life to serve or to slow down and treasure the king. Maybe this morning you need to behold and you need to respond in serving or respond in treasuring. Maybe some of you in this room, you've been following Jesus for 80 years and you've not shared the gospel with one person, you haven't shared the gospel with somebody in 10 years. Maybe this morning you need to be like the shepherds and respond with an infectious joy. And like, hey, I need to start telling people about this. And it might be awkward and uncomfortable. That's okay. Eternity is at stake. The point is that every one of us in this room can continually respond to Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. Some of us in this room need to respond for the first time. We need to respond in faith. Some of you need to respond by being baptized. Some of you need to respond by serving. Some of you need to, need to respond by treasuring. Some of you need to respond by sharing. We all have a way to respond. And Jesus, this morning we pray and ask that you would give us the courage. The courage to respond. To know exactly who it is you are and know that our response is demanded of us. There's no middle ground. God, give us the courage. I'm going to be up here. If I can help you in any of that, I would love to pray with you and walk with you through that. If you don't know Jesus, I would love to introduce you to him. He'll take you just as you are. If you need to respond in these other ways, man, just come talk to me. Let me pray with you. Maybe we just need to sing and treasure him. Let's do that. God, we love you in Christ. Let me pray all through the service. Let's stand together.